Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Built by Us. It's Taylor here, also with Alyssa. And today we are joined by an amazing special guest, Omi Shade Bernie Scott. Uh, Omi is the creator and curator of the Black Girl's Guide to Surviving Menopause. We are so happy to have you here today. Welcome, Omi. Would you mind telling us a little more about you? First, I want to say thank you, Taylor and Alyssa, for inviting me to, to be on the podcast. Um, yeah, I guess it would be great for folks to know that I'm a, a native North Carolinian. You know, like a lot of people who find themselves doing movement work um, sometimes come from different places. And that's fine. I think that's important. You know, we have a, a, a good mix of people in the state who are committed to um, social justice, equity, liberation work. I also think it's really important that we have a number of people who are from North Carolina and um, are committed to North Carolina being stronger. Um, and so I'm originally from New Bern, I'm a seventh generation North Carolinian on both sides, on my mom and my dad's side. So um, I'm really, really from North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> that runs deep. <laughs> it does, it runs, it runs real deep. Um, you know, I, I've been living in Durham now um, for 20, two years, 23, 23 years. I love Durham. Um, um, I have two sons, um, one who will be 29 um, in March and one who's 12, um, who'll be 13 in October. And I'm really, really, really committed to social justice. So it has looked a lot of different ways um, in the last 25 years that I've done social justice work in this state. Um, but I'm, I'm still committed nonetheless. I'm, not, I'm in a different lane now, I will say that much. I think I find myself at, at 53 in a different lane. Would you want to say more about that? Because I'm interested in, yeah. in how you mean. Sure. So I guess a little background on like kind of maybe how I got into social justice might help, might help you understand the trajectory of like why I think I'm in a different lane now and also why I think it's important um, for folks to make decisions around like how they are engaged in movement work and how they move in and out of movement spaces. So I started doing social justice work. Like if I think about it truthfully, when I was a kid, like I've always been like um, a real active person and also a person really attuned to how people were being treated either fairly or unfairly or just or unjustly. And so that has been something that's been like part of the way I was hardwired for, as a little person. Um, and my, my mom used to tease me because I would get so upset if I saw something going down. I was like, that is, that's not fair. That's, that's not right. You shouldn't treat this person that way. You shouldn't talk to this person that way. And she would say, you cannot die. You cannot fall on your sword every day. And when I was younger, I was like, I do not know what that means. <laughs> like, you know, because every day I was just like righteously upset about something. I was like, that's wrong and that's wrong. And they should have done this. And then she was like, yes, I agree with you. And you <laughs> have to pick and choose your battles and you cannot die on your sword every day. And I understand that now in yeah. retrospect. So in high school and college, I was fairly active. Um, and initially I thought I was going to go into um, college administration. I, I worked in the admissions office. I was an assistant director of admissions at UNC. I graduated from Carolina in 89, 
Um, I worked at it. Yep, yep. Go Tar Heels. <laughs> um, and then I worked at Shaw University. It was my first admissions job was at Shaw University. And then I left from Shaw and came back and was an assistant director of admissions at UNC. And I was like, oh, that's this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a college administrator. I'm going to do student services. This is going to be my life. I'm going to, you know, whatever. Maybe one day I'll be the director of admissions. That's, that was in my head. <laughs> And then a very good friend of mine named Daryl Lester said, hey, listen, there's this really cool organization called Public Allies, and they make it possible for young people between the ages of 18 and 30 to be placed in nonprofit organizations throughout the triangle for 10 months to learn about social change work and leadership. I feel like this has your name written all over. You should apply to be a program manager with this. And I was like, I'm not sure what this is. He was like, I promise you, this is the thing. I was like, okay. So I applied and he was right. Um, for five years, I worked in an organization that was really trying to help young people who were interested in learning more about social change, social justice, different issues that affect the community from an asset-based community development perspective to learn about working at a nonprofit and then be prepared to actually either work in a nonprofit or to start their own nonprofit or something like that. And I loved it. I loved it. And that, that absolutely solidified me into more um, full-time social change, social justice work. So, and that was in 95. So since 1995, I've done a lot of different things. I've done community economic development. Um, I've also um, done, which you all know, voting rights because I was a training director at DMNC for a while and I was engaged ooh, at a time that was super challenging. I mean, it's been very challenging around voter suppression in North Carolina for quite some time, but it, it felt like when I came on at DMNC, which was around 2013, it was like yeah. everything was just in yeah. and we were just like, what is going on? It was just so intense um, and a really critical, critical time for North Carolina voters mm -hmm. in protecting voting rights in this state. Um, and so I worked at Demacy, so I've done voting rights. Of course, I, you know, I've done leadership development. I've also worked in philanthropy. Um, and then I also have done work in reproductive justice, which was the last kind of like stretch of work that I have done um, professionally or full-time. Mm -hmm. And so in 2018, I found myself at an impasse. Um, it, a lot of different things were happening in 2018, personally and professionally. Um, it was a really challenging year for me. In 2018, I was 51. And um, we, I lost my first sibling, which is a challenge when you, different things happen, upheavals happen in your family. Hurricane Florence came in and all but destroyed New Bern, yeah. which is a huge thing. And so I find myself going home to do a lot of work around um, recovery efforts and supporting grassroots organizations that were on the ground doing amazing work. So it wasn't like I was swooping in with a cape, like here, I'm here to do everything y'all need. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm here to roll my sleeves up. Tell me what mm -hmm. you need me to do. I was working with a couple of other amazing black women um, who were like, I'm getting ready to go home, Omi. Are you going home too? I'm like, yes. We put our heads together and we went home and we did a lot of great work. Um, and then at the end of the year, the universe opened up and was like, do you want to keep doing this work? The universe was like, we're going to take some things off the table so you can make a good decision around what you want to do next. 
And I was like, I don't know what I want to do next. And I have the good fortune of having great friends in movement space who were like, you should take a sabbatical. You should take a break. You should take a, I said, for how long? They were like, a year. I was like, how am I even going to do that? I don't <laughs> know what that looks like. But I did. And that has really shifted um, how I see myself in relationship with movement work, what role I feel like is important for me to play, at, actually, at, also at this stage of my life. Um, and it also was the seed that allowed me to do some really deep, intentional, creative work around aging and menopause for Black women and femmes and non-binary people. So it's been... Um, a really fascinating two years, two and almost three years. Um, and of course, you know, last year with the pandemic, like it just, I was like, well, mm, how do you, how do you continue to figure out what your appropriate lane is and what your offering is to movement space in the middle of what feels like the world is exploding. Um, and so I, I think I have figured out that, you know, Part of the role that I think is important for me to play is around healing justice. Um, you know, a healing justice framework is really based on what does it look like for folk who are engaged in movement work to be a healthy person as an individual and also be engaged in healthy relationships with their colleagues, their comrades, and their community. And how do we understand that all, most of us who do movement work have trauma responses to the work that we're doing? Whether it's a trauma response I have as a black person, seeing another person, black person being harmed or violated or oppressed by a violent system, by white supremacy, right? And I'm supposed to be in a, a mode to be able to separate what I see with what I do to address it or redress it, right? And so healing justice is a framework that says you can intentionally and consistently be in a practice of keeping yourself healthy, whole, and sane in movement space in this work. And you can also band it out so that it becomes a part of the cultural practices of organizations and the community that we keep each other safe in ways where we are not in inflicting harm on each other while we're also trying to address and redress societal harms or systemic oppression. And that's the lane I find myself in now. Um, my lane is not to be out organizing at this stage of the game. Um, I still think I'll engage in, in advocacy work, in particular advocacy work around reproductive justice and menopause, um, but most certainly around holding healing space um, and helping organizations and philanthropic groups or community groups really think about what is the healing justice framework that's gonna hold your work so you take good care of yourself and the folk that you're working with, and you all are not in, you know, exacting harm on each other while you're out here in these streets trying to keep us all protected and liberated. So that's where I, I think that's where I am. Yeah. Everything you're saying is resonating so deeply with me right now because, because I feel like a lot of people are in this moment right now and paying attention to those things, like knowing that your decision-making process for what you wanted to do next was what is my offering? Mm -hmm. Because it's so easy for the first step to be, I got to be in everything. I got to, I got to fix, I got to throw everything at the wall. Right. So everything I know how to do. And as someone like yourself, who's done a lot of jobs, 
you have a lot of skills. So you, you know, you could have just said, I know how to do all these things. Let me do all of them. Huh. Yeah. Um, and I think it's what a lot of people would, would want to do in that moment, right. Is knowing that everything is burning. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me do everything that I can. But at the same time, that's not healthy for yourself. And it wasn't what you felt was right for your offering. So I, I really appreciate the way you frame that. And the, the healing part of it is something that we talk about a lot. What we're talking about a lot right now. And when we have group meetings, because we're all very aware that one COVID is a time where we're all experiencing the trauma of COVID. So it's this, it's this like group trauma, but of course everyone's experiencing it differently because it affects everybody differently. And then of course, all the everyday other trauma, um, of how white supremacy is affecting everybody day to day, whether it's COVID related or straight up violence. And Mm -hmm. so thinking about healing justice and how that's the space that you're in right now, I think is very exciting because a lot of people need help with that because again, the martyrdom aspect of nonprofit work is something that we're working really hard to get out of. We're like, cool. Good, good. Um, One of my favorite things to say is that something is a fool's errand. Mm -hmm. And that's a fool's errand um, to think that your level of commitment to justice or your level of commitment to liberation is synonymous with burning yourself out in, in martyrdom. Like if you are really, really committed to the liberation of all people, you will sacrifice your sanity. Mm-hmm. You will sacrifice your physical health. You will sacrifice your relationships with your partners or your children. Cause that's how real it is for you. And I don't think that that is what we're being asked to do. I think that we're actually being asked to reconsider what it looks like for all of us to move into more liberated spaces together, whole, right? whole and healthy, right? It's like, I don't wanna show up in liberation with a limp and mean. <laughs> <I'd>, That's a <laughs> great just, visual. <laughs> like, oh, sh- why on me? I'm like, stop talking to me. Like, I would really prefer to show up in liberation robustly, right? Before to be like, oh my gosh, she looks so vibrant and happy and, I want to be around her and we're still doing liberatory stuff together. And I'm like, this is great. That's the visual I have for us. It's like to be in these spaces that we are creating together, that we're manifesting together, the vision we have for this world and we're manifesting it. Then when we arrive in these spaces, because I think it's going to be iterative. Mm-hmm. Every time we arrive in this iterative space, you're the best person you can be in that moment. Right. And if you're not, you have an awareness and a practice to help you get back in alignment with who you want to be and be healthy and safe. And I just, I think that's possible. I think it's necessary. I think we have learned a lot from the uh, amazing hard work of folks who've come before us. We are truly the beneficiaries of people who did sacrifice themselves. And a lot of the people that you will speak to who are older than I am, who are part of the civil rights movement or the black liberation movement or whatever the case may be, will say, mm, we learned a lot. We yeah. learned a lot about sacrifice, you know, and they get to speak their own truth around the decisions they made 
Um, and for me, this, the decision that I am making is how I can be engaged in liberation work and also be healthy in the process. Hearing this even as like a student, a grad student who's working alongside a lot of students who are starting to move into this space and starting to kind of feel that burnout, even just hearing you talk about healing justice as a space that you can be in is so powerful because I know a lot of people that are just like, well, I don't know what to do from here. I don't know where to go. Like they just are so conflicted with wanting to do more and just not understanding where their role can be. And so hearing that that is where your role can be, and that's a good place to be. And you can still contribute so much to yourself and to the entire community when you're there. And hearing that somebody with as much experience as you being like, yes, healing justice is a space that we all need to be engaging in and be taking place in. That makes me feel like, okay, I need to be doing this for myself, for everyone. So we can all keep doing this together. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, if you look at the, the ecology of movements, if you look at the ecology of the social justice terrain, every, there's a role to play, right? You know, you have frontline folk, you got folk who are organizers, who are boots on the ground, you've got activists, you've got folk who are doing advocacy work, you've got folk who are the trainers, the teachers. I you know, I, you already have a sense, I love political education. I, I love it, it's one of my favorite things to do. So you've got the educators who are just like, just light bulbs just popping on and people are like, oh, you know, or also reminding people, you already know the story because it's yours, right? Or you already know the situation of this dynamic because you are the expert of what's happening in your community. You might not always have the language for what's happening, or you might not also have a strategy for how you want to address something, but you already know something. And I want to validate that. I love doing that. That's one of my favorite things to do. I still do training. So I, I love doing training, you know, and there are those of us who are really concerned about the, the holistic health of the movement. What does it look like from the individual organizational community level? What does our health look like? How are we healthy, right? So, you know, people come into movements, movement work for a lot of different reasons. You know, some of us find ourselves coming into movement space because of traumatic experiences, right? And so, or we experience trauma while we're doing movement work. And so whatever the case may be, um, I want us to operate from a place that's really focused on that whole person and, and say, okay, if you're gonna be doing this work, how are you, how is this whole person, how are you always centering your whole personhood and making sure that you are well and taken care of? And I do know that people will say, well, that's fluff or that must be nice. That's kind of that woo-woo thing. It's the kind of woo-woo to, you know, have these conversations around that. I was like, yeah. And there are also people who have died as a result, and I, which is not hyperbolic or being exaggerating. Folk who've literally paid the cost, um, whether their bodies ended up in a situation where they, they couldn't sustain their own lives or they took their life, right? And so what I don't want from anyone is all of the energy that you kind of absorb from this really important work, not to be able to be moved through your body and out of your body so you can continue to do this work if you choose to, if you choose to, because opting out and tapping out to take care of yourself is also an option that should always be on the table for someone for movement work. Mm -hmm. Would you say that this like, you arriving here and being in this space has shifted your your personal theory of change or how you see 
grand change being able to be made, you know? Yeah, I, I still think I think my theory of change um, is pretty much still the same. My theory of change is always going to start with the people who are most impacted by any situation, yeah. right? And like, how are you affirming, respecting, centering, supporting, resourcing those folk? I'm always going to start there. I think what I've added to my theory of change is like, how are you also making sure that these folk are consistently provided with exquisite care and safety and healing? Like, mm -hmm. like that, that will be the addition mm -hmm. to that. It's like, okay, so if we're, if we're going to take you through this this popular ed mode of political education, how do we intentionally bake into that curriculum or into that pedagogy healing justice? So you're not just you're not just learning kind of about like you know like a Howard Zinn's history of the of people's history right you know of the United States it's like which is important you need that information because what we're seeing that's happening right now what we saw happen in Jan on January six mm -hmm. is reminiscent of what we saw happen after Reconstruction mm -hmm. right so one of the trainings I did when I was at at DMNC is we talked we did a timeline of voting rights in this state yeah and you we'll still saw look at that oh my gosh. <laughs> Because it's long, oh, we need it. <laughs> it's so it's so crazy, and you know, and when we talk about it, people are like, wait a minute, we've done yes, this has been done before. This has been done before, where democratically, mostly democratically elected public officials were unseated by mm -hmm. white supremacy. Judges were assassinated by white supremacy. Right, so you can see the dialing back of our citizenry, mm -hmm. but. I also think that what I would weave into that is like, now how are you going to be engaging with this work? How are you keeping yourself whole and sane while you're engaging with this work? Because it's, it is, you know, it's challenging when you see, you see things in different ways that people who are not doing social justice work don't always see. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes your friends or family be like, you're a conspiracy theorist. You see everything. And so I was like, I don't know if that's the case. I might be a moderate conspiracy theorist. <laughs> you know, but I also think that I don't want to see things to the degree that is my own undoing. Mm. I want to be able to um, give myself permission to untap. So there's just different practices that you put into place, whether it's a daily practice or a weekly practice or practice that's solitary or practices in community with other people that just consistently regrounds you in a healthy way. And I think that that people are becoming more clear and 2020 absolutely gave us a lot more information around, you need to be able to take care of yourself. You need to. And I think that, you know, moving forward, you know, for however long we find ourselves, you know, quarantining, however long we find ourselves in, figuring out what this new normal looks like over the next couple of years, I think that we're going to continue to be invited to think, how are you engaging in this work that not only is critical for this country and for your community, but it's also not going to be your undoing. Yeah. 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 I think we're in a really unique space right now where we actually have time to do that. So it's actually exciting to think about. <laughs> it, it is great. It's a great time. It's a great time to do that. The level of fatigue that I know that folks who do movement work experience is so intense. It's so intense. 
And it's, it's you know, I, I know y'all are both shaking your heads at me, you know, it's like, and for folk who are not necessarily in that space, I don't think they always understand or can appreciate how fatiguing it is. It is physically fatiguing. It is soul level fatiguing. Yeah. Soul level fatiguing. And especially in these last several years around police violence. I remember when um, Zimmerman was acquitted, my oldest son was still a student at Howard and I was down in Wilmington getting ready to do a training for Dem and C. And the, the news came on and we had been doing the training all day and we were gonna do some evening programming. And I was in the hotel and it said that he had been acquitted and I just, I lost it. Like I bugged out, I was just crying. I was inconsolable. And then my immediate thought was the boys, are the boys safe? Like I had this completely irrational, like response to like, are they okay? So I called my oldest Che in DC and I was like, where are you? Cause I also felt like there was gonna be unrest um, in the immediate response mm -hmm. to that. So, um, and rightfully so. And so I was like, where are you? And he was like, I'm in my dorm room. I said, do not go out this evening. And he was like, what's wrong? And I couldn't get it out. I was like, they acquitted him, mm -hmm. killed this child who looks like you and they acquitted him. And he was like, mom, I'm safe. I'm okay. I'm not going to go out. If I do, I'll let you know where I am and who I'm with. Because he's also been, you know, I started working at Public Allies when Che was two. Mm -hmm. So he's been raised up in this space. And so yeah. he also knows like what it's like to be out and participate in rallies and marches and protests and gatherings and community trainings. Like he's, he's, he was my right hand for such a long time. His brother is the same way. So he was like, if I go out, I'll let you know. And I was like, please don't go out. <laughs> yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And that happened again last year. Yeah. At 28, when everything was happening in Brooklyn, in New York, I get these text messages from him and his pictures and videos. And I'm thinking, are you sending me news clips? And he was like, no, I'm out, I'm here. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Shay. He was like, mom, I am being the person you raised me to be. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this for myself. I'm doing this for my little brothers. I was like, Okay, he said, I'm being safe. I know what to do. I said, okay. So I just had a moment and I texted his dad and I, I texted his stepdad, my ex-husband. I was like, Chase, he's out. And he was, they were like, oh. And so then we had our family Zoom that next Sunday and he was like, you already know, you know, I was not just gonna sit in my apartment and watch it go down. Like I, I needed to do this. I needed to be there. I needed to be with my folks. And I was being smart. And I was like, okay. So it, it comes full circle. And you, I also want him to, as someone who's almost 30 years old, to be in a practice of taking good care of himself and also modeling that for my, my youngest, for my 12 year old. What does it look like for you to be in a practice of taking good care of yourself? Right, that's a part of liberation. Mm -hmm. That's a revolutionary act to take care, take care of yourself. I know you were stressed out thinking about him going out, but I can't imagine that you were surprised though, knowing I that you raised him that way. I, I was stressed out, but I wasn't surprised. And he checked me because I was like, <laughs> hey, 
wait. And he was like, I got my buddy. I, I, I'm with my people. Mm-hmm. We got to meet up spot if we get separated. Mm-hmm. I, I've got the number of an attorney. Like he, he ran it, you know, and I'm like, okay, okay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm proud of you. And I'm so stressed out. And he was like, and I wasn't out. And interestingly enough, I did not participate in any of the unrest or the or the marches or protests here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I support it from my home, you know, helping mm-hmm. people prepare as they were going to go out, but also helping people kind of debrief and like disengage from all of the really intense energy when they came back in and be like, how are you going to engage in what I call spiritual hygiene to kind of keep, get yourself recentered. And I got so many calls. They were like, Omi, are you here? Where are you? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out. I'm at home in front of, I have altars. I was like, I'm at home in front of my altars. And they were like, okay, okay. I was like, who's with you? And so what I could do is be like, who's with you? All right, you've got my number. Do you got, same thing. Who's your buddy? What's the plan if you get separated? What's the plan if you get arrested? Do you have a phone number for an attorney? Da, da, da. So it's just like all the things that we would do when we were planning actions, mm-hmm. all the things we were doing when we were planning protests and rallies. So people were always clear. It's a plan. And we also know that people get politically activated in a moment and kind of rush into situations and don't always have a plan. And so it's important for someone to be with them who does have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to hear all the things that you did because, you know, I'm thinking about how on, you know, on social media, you see that people, when this was all happening this summer, that people were like, if you don't feel comfortable going out, you don't, you don't have to force that to show that you support this movement. You can do other things and prepare. Um, You know, a lot of people were helping with supplies and and all that, but it's, it's just good to reiterate for our listeners if they've forgotten. And we are now actually joined by Des Gatewood. Des is our voter outreach coordinator here at Democracy NC, and they've been supporting us coordinate this series with these Black movement makers here in North Carolina. So thanks for joining, Des. Hey, Des. Hey, y'all. I'm on the road, so. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. I'm just, I'm glad to hear your voice, darling. Glad to hear your voice. Something else that I was wondering, because you used the phrase spiritual hygiene, and you said it's a term that you like to use. Are there other like terms that you use frequently in your work that you think that we should be learning? Hmm. Well, healing justice is one. Mm-hmm. Um, spiritual hygiene is definitely one. Um, what is your offering? Offering is one for sure. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, always think about, I'm like, you are actually your own altar. So what is your offering to the movement space? Right? So some people's offering, like, you know who I love that people don't give enough love to? Comms. <laughs> Listen. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Woo! I'm always like, you can tell when somebody like bumped up their calm strategy or bumped up their comms like capacity. You're like, ooh, look at that. It's amazing because comms is creative, is strategic. Um, comms can blow the socks off of people like movement for black lives comms team went ballistic this year and you're just like look at that beautiful that everything they have dropped like the their drop that what they dropped for um black history month beautiful. Mm-hmm. absolutely afrofuturistic 
gorgeousness. Mm -hmm. So I think the comms team definitely is the most underrated, most needed team is to get that information out in a way that is just beautiful and compelling and provocative and multimedia. I just love it. I love it. I have a lot of love for comms. Um, and I think, so I think that knowing that your role, so the offering you play, what's your role? You know, when I say spiritual hygiene, I literally do mean if you've been out and you've been doing organizing work or you've been at the legislative space, you know, doing advocacy work or policy work, it's like all of that energy is kind of attached to you when you get in your car and you're on your way home or you get off of Zoom because you've been in Zoom, 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 and you just feel completely zapped. What is your spiritual hygiene? What do you do? take care of yourself, pull that energy, let that energy be released from you. What does that look like? Does that look like you taking a shower? Does that look like you untapping? Does that look like you putting on lighter clothes? Does that look like you lighting some candles or some incense or some sage? Does that look like you not talking for the rest of the evening and just drinking water or tea or chilling out? Like, what does that look like? But it, there needs to be a practice that invites you to do that to detach from whatever that energy is that you've been like so engrossed in. It's like you've been sitting in it and you're like, ah, I need to detach. So I think that's you, that's why I use that language because I feel like that's um, so important. You know, another word that I use in Desmarable Laugh, I use it all the time is accoutrement. What is your, what's your, what's your thing? You know, some people have, um, I don't know, they use music or multimedia or digital media, that's their accoutrement. That's how they get information out. My accoutrement includes storytelling because I'm a storyteller. So I know only accoutrement in any way I'm doing social justice work is always gonna use storytelling no matter what. And it's interesting because I would not have called myself a storyteller when I first started doing this work, but I was. I just, it just wasn't language that I don't know that I felt comfortable claiming, maybe, maybe that's what it was, but accoutrement is definitely an only word too. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, you coming to a space where you claim that you're a storyteller gives you then more power to do it even better than probably you were before when you weren't calling yourself as such. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. It's, you know, I think the storytelling, <clears throat> always begins with your own story and like how you are present to the different stories that live inside of your body. Your personal stories, the stories of your family, the stories of your culture, um, the stories of your upbringing, your generation. What are your generational stories? We all have shared stories that overlap, right? Which is really, I love that. Um, but your, your individual story is a very powerful place to begin. And so I do think that once I started becoming more confident in saying, I am a storyteller, that allowed me to um, dig in more deeply to my own personal story um, and decide on what I, what I want to share and what was just for me for my own personal interrogation. I just wanted to ask you this only as you were talking, what does, as we think about democracy and Black people's place in democracy, what does a functional democracy for Black people in this moment look like to you? Hmm. 
are we talking about a functional democracy in terms of a government or a functional democracy? In I don't even know if I thought that far. <laughs> you're so you're so deep. Um, <laughs> whatever came to mind when I said that. You know, I'm thinking it. we are a democracy, North Carolina. So I'm I'm thinking about the framework of just democracy in general and how that can inform our work. Um, yes. What, what your okay. thoughts are on that? I do have an answer because I. So I will go with the first response I had. I think what we need to have a functional democracy. Everybody needs a political home, and this is what I mean by a political home. I don't mean political affiliation or a political party. A political home is a group mm -hmm. of people that's either formal or informal that thinks together, visions together, and manifests together the kind of world we want to live in. So that means you are about study. You know, there, there is something about political education and the rigor of study, right? Studying history, studying what's happening contemporarily, having an analysis, seeing the, the, the through line of what has happened in the past to what is happening currently, the tethers that exist and being able to say, okay, all right, let's map this out. Let's understand, let's study, let's talk to each other. Let's, let's challenge each other. Let's challenge each other. Let's hold each other accountable and say, well, then what is the world that we want to create? And what am, what's my offering to the creation or the manifestation of that world? That's what I feel like is necessary for a democracy to work. That's what I feel like has been working in the midst of the crumbling of the system that we currently live under. So what we see happening in local communities, what we see happening nationally with movement for black lives and things like that is people being clear that they have a political home and they have a political home that is allowing them to vo vocalize and voice. This is the vision I have for how this world should look. This is the vision I have for how I should be able to move in the world how my family should be able to move in the world, how my neighbor, how my community members. And this is what, we're, what's, we're, what we are offering. This is what we're asking for. This is what we're prepared to do to manifest it. And that's different, right? Than being like, what's your party affiliation? And how are you engaged? And, and people also, I think, are focused on one thing, which is the important thing, which is voting, right? They're like, that is the thing. That is the key. That is the ticket. That is that is the, the key of many keys. It's a whole key ring. It's like a janitor's key ring. You know how a janitor has like, what, 25, 30 keys? Voting is one of the keys on that key ring that will keep us all safe in this democracy. Voting is one of those things. Accountability, civic engagement, you know, public education, political education, community organizing you know, creating, you know, spaces around safety, you know, violence mitigation. Like there's so many things that are engaged in that process. Um, and so that's that's where I went, Des, when you asked that question, I was like, oh, this is a good question. I appreciate this question because you, you always ask good questions. I was like, that's, I've been thinking about that a lot and having conversations with people who are part of my own political Home. I have a political home. Spirit House is my political home. And we talk about this all the time, all the time. What's our vision? What do we see? What are we willing to do? How do we want to address it? How do we keep learning? 
What are we studying? What are we reading? What are we watching? What are we listening to? Does mm-hmm. that was such a good question. <laughs> we need to ask that of like everybody now. I um, think so. I know, I know. And it's an earnest question because I really don't know. I mean, right? I have thoughts, but I'm like. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, my question was not not this deep. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, but not not this foundational. But I was wondering, you know, earlier talking about storytelling, if that's how you came to decide to create this this project that you have the uh, uh, Black Girls Guide to Surviving Menopause, knowing that it's a podcast, it's a brand, it's and it's it's having so many people tell their stories. So I was just curious about how it came to be. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Angel Dozier of Be Connected Durham um, encouraged me to do a one woman show at BU Cafe. She was like, you have a story to tell. You should do a one woman show because you're also going to write a book. And I was like, what, what, and what? Like it was, it was like that kind of situation where, you know, someone says to you, hey, you, I know what you can do. And you're like looking around like, who, me? And she was like, yes, you. And she literally was like a creative doula. Like Angel took me by the hand and was like, you're going to do this one woman show and you're going to talk about your experiences as a black woman, as a black mother and about life. And I was like, okay. And I did, I did two one woman shows Um, and they were great and they were fun and I enjoyed myself. And I was like, okay, we're done. And then while I, when I was on my sabbatical, once again, my oldest child, Che, he was like, you have to do something creative, mom. You're a very creative person. You have poured so much creative energy into every job you have ever had doing social justice. What would it look like for you? What, what about storytelling? And what stories do you want to tell? And I was like, I'd really like to talk to some older Black women. You know, women who are my age, you know, in their 50s or older around like how they're experiencing life, you know? And then I decided, all right, well, I'll talk about menopause because it's a run, it was a running joke. It's been a running joke in, in a lot of my personal life. We were talking about, you know, how we were experiencing menopause. And I was like, you know, just like anything else that is associated with this body, it's political, right? I exist inside of a body that is political, right? I exist inside a body um, that's cis. I exist inside a body that's hetero. I exist inside a body that's black. I exist inside a body that's Southern. Like I exist inside a body that's older. Everything about my body, everybody thing about your body, everything about anybody's body is political because so many people want to tell you what to do with your body. And so many people want to tell you how you should identify, right? And then how you should move in the world. And I was like, oh, I need to think about this in a much broader way. Because it certainly feels personal to me, very personal to me as a, as a Black woman. But I also know that there are people who experience menopause who don't identify as a woman, who don't identify as femme, who are experiencing it. And their voices are absolutely and utterly invisibilized. So I was like, all right, how do I start from where what I know, start from myself, and then spread out from there and spread out from there to make sure that the space is open, broad enough and deep enough to hold it, right? Broad enough and deep enough to hold it because all of our stories are important. 
So I don't want my story to be invisibilized while I tell your story. And I don't need to invisibilize your story to tell my story. I'm digging a deep well, a deep well. And that well is big enough and wide enough to hold all of our stories. For us to see where there's some intersections, right? But also for the uniqueness of who you are to shine by itself. And to say, that's important. That's not my journey. I don't know that story. It's still important. It still needs to be affirmed. It still needs to be protected, right? So that's where I'm at at this point of the game in terms of the storytelling is really stretching and growing, um, making sure that I have a real, real beautiful diversity of voices and narratives that are being shared on the podcast. Um, we are getting ready to move into season three. And our first episode of the season is a millennial takeover. Ooh, we love that. <laughs> it's going to be good. <laughs> I have um, two, two folks who I'm very, very close to. Aja Taylor, who works for Bread of the, Bread of the City in D.C. She's their director of advocacy and organizing. And Cherizar Crippen, who's also a community organizer and a trainer and facilitator. They're going to interview me and Makani Timba. And Makani is an OG, like Makani's like a big sister to me, right? So it's like, they're going to interview us and get to ask us whatever questions they want to ask us about menopause and aging and life. Mm -hmm. And so I love that. I love that we get to flip it. Um, I think that's important. I think that this is an intergenerational conversation um, in as much as it is a conversation for older people. And so I love that um, storytelling is transformative. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <sighs> All right. Well, to close out, I hope to ask everybody, what does Black History Month mean to you? And how do you see, how do you see it? So I was telling Taj, that's my youngest, that Black History Month used to be Black History Week. He was like, wait, what? That's out of control. And so he was like, well, first off, why are we only have a month? That's just ludicrous. I was like, yeah, it is ludicrous. It's like in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, this country has done a really piss poor job of acknowledging the folk they've othered and the folk that they have oppressed. And so what they've tended to do is to give you a celebratory acknowledgement in a week or a month or a day, you know, and be like, oh, here you go, which is not an apology and which is not accountability and it is not reparations. And so I think that Black History Month is what it is. I think it's important. Um, I think it's fine. I don't have a problem with Black History Month. I'm also very clear that Black History Month um, should be every single month, right? That you should be curious, engaged, respect, and affirm Blackness and Black people every day, every month. And so if this is the month where you find yourself being more curious about black people's history and culture and experiences um, contemporarily and historically, great. My advice would be to stretch that out for 12 months. So that way, <clears throat> the same way you should be curious about black folk, you should be curious about indigenous people. The same way you're curious about indigenous people, you should be curious about Latinx folk. You, you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going? It should be that your level of thinking about this world and who you share space with 
who you share air with, who you are standing shoulder to shoulder with, either in real time or virtually, that you're curious about that person and their personhood and the culture that they come from, right? And I think Black History Month is, is another opportunity to people to tap into that. Um, and I hope that it gets extended for them for a much longer period of time. I know that for me and my children, Black History Month is every month. Thank you for that. Well, thank you so much, Omi, for being here with us today. Taylor and I had such a great time and I learned so much and I know all of our listeners will too. So I'm just so happy that you could be here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was great. I enjoyed the conversation. And thanks to all of our listeners for helping us create a North Carolina that's built by us. Thanks for listening to this podcast made of, by, and for the people. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at democracync. Or you can visit our website at democracync.org.